Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Lots to get to this Thursday, this Tuesday rather, including Ukraine on the offensive. Ukrainian forces beginning a military operation to retake the Russian-occupied Kherson region. This as international inspectors ready a high-stakes visit to the biggest nuclear plant in Europe. The massive power station increasingly in the line of fire in the six-month war. We are live in Kyiv with the latest. Plus, the business of Serena. Tennis great Serena Williams winning her opening round U.S. Open match in what could be her last major tournament before retiring. Before retiring. We'll serve up a discussion on what's next for the 23-time Grand Slam winner coming up. But first, another center court match about to get underway on Wall Street. A better picture for U.S. stocks after two days of selling pressure, with all the major averages currently on track for a higher open. Europe mostly higher, too. But still a lot of nervousness over the Fed's rate hike path after Chair Powell's hawkish speech on Friday. Just released numbers show German inflation rising to almost 9 percent this month as well, a higher pace than expected. Stocks are steadying as oil prices pull back on global growth fears. European natural gas prices, they're falling sharply as well amid optimism that the region can withstand a winter with less Russian gas. The EU also readying emergency measures to ease the shock of sky-high energy prices. More on the markets later in the show. But first, major counterattacks are underway. Ukraine says its forces have broken through in several places on the front line of the battle near the southern city of Kherson. President Volodymyr Zelensky saying they will drive Russian troops to the border. If they want to survive, it's time for the Russian military to run away. Go home. If they do not hear me, they will have to deal with our defenders, who will not stop until they free everything that belongs to Ukraine. Melissa Bell is live in Kyiv with the latest. Melissa, what are Ukrainian officials saying about this counteroffensive in the south? Well, on one hand, they're remaining fairly uh, tight-lipped because they want uh, Ukrainians who are naturally at this point full of hope about what may be going on uh, uh, to understand that this is going to take some time. And that's one of the things we've been hearing over the course of the last few hours uh, is uh, presidential advisors saying this is going to be a long grind and we shouldn't hope for too many early successes. And yet we're also hearing from Ukrainian officials, uh, some at the regional level, uh, some here in Kyiv, Alison, of those early successes. Remember that this is a counteroffensive the Ukrainian side had been preparing for for some time, uh, using uh, those uh, that more advanced weaponry that it now has, thanks to NATO allies and specifically the American uh, HIMARS, to get beyond the front lines, to try and take out some of that key infrastructure along the Dnieper River that had allowed Russian forces uh, to resupply uh, their troops uh, that are currently holding Kherson. Now, we heard last night about the four villages that have been taken. We've been hearing this morning about about the fact that on this day two 
of the counteroffensive. It is several towns and villages along the front line that are the scene of fighting, but that Ukrainian forces, again, according to Ukrainian officials, have been able to continue targeting uh, those attempts being made by Russian forces to ferry their way across the river, their troops and their men, uh, their, their troops and their weaponry, uh, given that so many of the bridges that used to uh, uh, allow that crossing uh, say Ukrainians have been entirely destroyed. They say they're now targeting those efforts to ferry across their men and their weapons. From the Russian side, we'd heard, of course, last night uh, uh, the acknowledgement that this counteroffensive had begun, uh, but also the idea from the Russian Ministry of Defense that it had been an absolute failure, according to them. So uh, we keep a very close eye on this. There's a lot of excitement here in Kyiv amongst Ukrainians that what they hope they're going to see is a turning point. But again, Alison, uh, if that happens, it's going to be slow and painful. There are a lot of Russian soldiers currently occupying Kherson. Melissa, I know that a team from the IAEA has arrived there in Kyiv. Do you know when they're going to get to the Zaporizhia uh, nuclear plant to take a look at what's going on? And that's as the EU is donating millions of potassium iodide tablets to Ukraine to protect uh, the citizens there in case there is some sort of radio uh, radiation exposure. Uh, that gives you an idea of how concerned people are. You're talking about Europe's largest nuclear facility, and it has been the subject uh, not just of fighting, but so much speculation these last few days. Uh, the shelling around it, what damage it may or may not have caused, who's responsible for the shelling. Now, we were hoping to hear more this morning, Alison, from the IAEA team itself staying here at this hotel in Kiev. We were hoping to find out exactly when they were hoping to get to Zaporizhia and what access they'd been given. Now, that press conference was suddenly cancelled. And since then, we've been hearing from Ukrainian officials uh, the idea that it is uh, Russian shelling of the corridors that would have allowed them to get to the plant, but also uh, Russian military exercises around the plant uh, that are preventing the team from going. Again, from the Russian side, we've been hearing that there had been Ukrainian shelling near the plant this morning. And it is in that context that we wait to hear more from the IAEA, it's, IAEA itself. Clearly, the hope had been that they would get to Zaporizhia fairly quickly. Uh, for the time being, that doesn't appear to be the case. And again, with all those concerns, as that shelling continues, as that safe passage is uh, impossible for these inspectors one way or the other of what that will mean for the plant. And remember that this is a plant that is uh, in the hands of Russian forces, since it is now in those occupied parts of the country around Zaporizhia, but it is being manned uh, by Ukrainian engineers, an extremely worrying situation that for the time being, the world waits to hear more about. Alison. Okay, Melissa Bell, live for us from Kyiv. Thanks so much. To Iraq, a country on edge right now after some of the deadliest violence its capital Baghdad has seen in years. This was just a snapshot of the fighting on Monday when at least 10 people were killed and hundreds, hundreds more injured, according to medical sources. The violence was brought on after a prominent cleric announced he's quitting from politics, throwing the country's leadership into further uncertainty. Ben Weedman is live for us on this story. So these clashes have certainly intensified, Ben, overnight. Well, actually, they've come to a rather abrupt end. At uh, 1 p.m. Baghdad uh, time, Muqtada Sadr came on television and told his followers, uh, first of all, he condemned uh, the violence, which, just to update you, has left at least 
21 people dead and more than 250 wounded. He condemned the violence and he told his supporters who were inside the green zone that they must leave within 60 minutes or in his words, he would disavow the movement that is known as the Sadrist movement, named after him. And what we saw from those television networks that are actually functioning out of Baghdad uh, was that those protesters left almost immediately. The guns fell silent. They left the green zone immediately. The guns uh, fell silent. And within minutes, the Iraqi army canceled a Baghdad-wide curfew that had been announced. Now, just to give you the background to this, Muqtada Sadr, who is a powerful Shia leader, uh, leads a bloc that won the largest group of seats in the Iraqi parliament last October. Uh, but since then, none of the politicians were able to agree on the formation of a government. Muqtada Sadr back in June told all his 73 members of parliament to resign. What followed were sit-ins within the green zone where the Iraqi parliament was located. And yesterday on Twitter, Muqtada Sadr announced that he was permanently withdrawing from political life. Now, I believe that's the fifth or the sixth time he's made such an announcement since 2013, but that was a, an act that sent his, his supporters into the green zone, some of them occupying what's known as the uh, presidential, rather the Republican palace, uh, where the current caretaker government is functioning. Uh, but apparently the shock of the violence that we've seen over the last 24 hours was enough perhaps to convince Muqtada Sadr uh, that it was time to call his people back. And it appears at the moment, at the moment, calm has been restored, Allison, in Baghdad. Okay, Ben Weedman, thanks for all that great context. The world's biggest electronics market shut down. China locks down some areas in the city of Shenzhen, the country's southern technology hub. This as Beijing sticks to its zero COVID policy. I want to bring in Will Ripley. He joins us now. Will, great to see you. So how long do you think this latest lockdown will last? Well, it really depends on the case numbers, but I need to put the case numbers in context. Shenzhen has 18 million people. They have 35 infections reported today, 11 of them asymptomatic. And because of those 35 infections, they are shutting down, as you mentioned, the world's largest electronics market. They're putting neighborhoods into mandatory four-day lockdowns, several neighborhoods. Uh, they are basically classifying dozens of areas, dozens of neighborhoods as high risk, which means that there are lockdown orders, residential buildings are blocked off. Uh, people's apartments, if there's a single COVID case in their apartment, uh, surrounded by barbed wire fencing. Uh, entertainment venues are closed in many areas, along with public parks. Uh, public gatherings are banned. You know, if you have a wedding, canceled. Uh, 24 subway stations are suspending service, along with hundreds of bus stations. And this is all because there is this new Omicron variant, uh, BF15, uh, which is, you know, experts say more transmissible and harder to detect. Uh, and so they're worried about those 35 infections becoming a larger number. So as a result, millions of people uh, are once again enduring kind of like this time warp back uh, to the zero COVID days that many of us around the world at one point uh, experienced. But most countries, except for China, 
have pretty much moved on or are in the process of moving on. But this is a pet uh, project of China's President Xi Jinping, who has absolute power in that country of 1.5 billion people. So even though this zero COVID policy is extracting a heavy blow uh, to the economy in China, which has been slowing down, I mean, you have youth unemployment now at a record high, uh, one in five young people out of work in China. You have and you have this massive effort, expensive effort to enforce zero COVID, even as vaccination rates, especially among the high risk elderly, continue to be low. So they're spending money on digital surveillance, mass testing, extensive quarantines and snap lockdowns. And yet people aren't getting the shots in the arms, the vaccinations that they would need to be protected. And other countries have felt that if enough people are vaccinated, they can move on from zero COVID safely. That's not happening in China, Allison. Okay, Will Ripley, thanks for all of your reporting. The head of the U.N. is warning that the planet is sleepwalking to its own destruction, saying climate change has created what he calls a monsoon on steroids in Pakistan. More than 1,000 people have been killed by floods that are threatening to submerge a third of the country. The disaster is impacting tens of millions of people and has already caused damage estimated at $10 billion. Anna Corrin has more. The endless monsoon rains may have eased for now, but the deluge across Pakistan has left carnage and destruction on an unprecedented scale. Up to a third of the country could end up underwater. Countless townships are already submerged, leaving millions of Pakistanis destitute and homeless. We are poor people, says this woman. Our home was destroyed, our belongings disappeared in the big flood. Our children are waiting on the bank with no food, no shelter. The government says the historic floods across Pakistan that have claimed the lives of more than 1,100 people are estimated to have caused more than $10 billion in damage. For a country that already received a bailout from the International Monetary Fund, this calamity could push its fragile economy to the brink. Until water completely recedes, they will not be able to go and physically do the survey. But my hunch is that this is going to be two to three times higher than what we are estimating. The Prime Minister has set up a National Flood Response and Coordination Centre and the military has been mobilised to help with evacuations. Tent cities have sprung up and humanitarian aid is slowly trickling in. But it's a drop in the ocean considering the magnitude of this climate change-induced catastrophe. I have been in, in the Red Cross Red Crescent for the last 29 years. I haven't seen anything like this. It is... It is uh, a serious situation, Pakistan's in dire need, and uh, the damages are here, and we will be in this for a long time. It's not months, but it's years that we're talking about. A time frame unfathomable to these desperate people, whose only priority right now is survival. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. Meantime, a new report warns a melting ice sheet will raise sea levels by 27 centimeters around the world by the start of the next century. The study predicts trillions of tons of ice will disappear in Greenland between now and then. Joining us now is CNN's chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir. Bill, great to see you. I want to hear more about the details of this study. But first, tell us why Greenland and its ice sheet are so important. 
Uh, well, it's the position. It's up in the Arctic, which is warming, you know, three to four times faster than the rest of the planet. And because it's this massive block of land ice, it has enormous implications, not just on sea level rise, but also the Gulf Stream, the, the current, the, the conveyor belt that brings warm water up from the Caribbean, up past the United States, over to England. If that, all this fresh water melting is throwing that off as well, which affects weather patterns really around the world. So this report actually isn't saying that the entire Greenland ice pack will melt. The results that they're talking about is 3.3 percent of the ice sheet or 110 trillion tons of ice between now and the year 2100. How much is in the full ice pack? Uh, well, if the whole thing melts, uh, it's, it would raise sea levels by 20 to 30 feet, uh, you know, by dozens of meters. It, it, it's beyond comprehensible. It's, you know, taking Earth back to millions of years uh, before humans built cities on the coastlines right there. But just enough is already sort of gone, is already water over the bridge, uh, to, to mix the metaphor right there. Because what has historically happened is climate models have tried to pick a date in the future and using computer modeling to, to factor in all the different factors. There's so many different things that go into this. They say by this year, it will raise by this. Well, these numbers are so much higher because they're just observing what has already happened. They're looking at about 20 years of satellite data to measure how the snow line retreats and, and, and advances seasonally. And just by seeing what is gone, they realize there's so much less uh, ice to catch, you know, more snow and build itself back up. And so what we have already built into the system here is about 27 centimeters, 11 inches. That's a global average, though. We have to keep in mind some places like Southeast Asia, it could be five times that. It depends on where you are on the planet. Meanwhile, the, actually, the sea level around Greenland, it, the country is actually rising up as all of that, the weight of that ice melts off. So sea levels in Greenland are going down. But it's hugely, hugely alarming uh, for coastal cities who are already trying to plan. There's billion-dollar seawall plans in Charleston, South Carolina, for example. But this accelerates the timeline and makes it that much more difficult to adapt. Okay. And in addition, NOAA research uh, shows that if the sea level rises one foot, we should expect worse flooding. And the study's co-author told you last year that the sea, le that the sea level rises uh, would be happening so fast that it'll be hard to adapt. So Talk us through what this means for places who aren't underwater at the moment or, or would be, wouldn't be. Yeah, well, it, you know, it, it, the thing is, you think, well, if it rises 10 inches, I live 20 miles from the coastline. I'll, I'll be safe. But this means more nuisance flooding by a factor of 10. It means bigger storm surges when there are hurricanes. It means infrastructure that was built at a different time uh, no longer will hold up. In, in cities like New Orleans and, and Charleston and Boston, uh, it's obvious there, if you go down to the waterfront, how close they are uh, to peril. But uh, real worrisome things are like Vietnam, for example. And if rice production is wiped out by seawater inundation, you know, that has a trickle effect economically, humanitarian, climate refugees are all part of, uh, of what happens as if, if that all system collapses. They're working on coming up with new strands of rice, uh, new strains genetically that can survive in brackish water. But this, is, this kind of research is at its infancy. And this is happening, as we said, much faster than expected. Yeah, certainly stunning research. Bill Weir, thanks so much for breaking all that down.
Coming up on First Move, Elon Musk thinks the world's population is on track to collapse, and that's a bigger threat to civilization than global warming. Is he right? Plus, uber cool floating homes of the future. Check these out a few meters above the waves. Science fiction becoming science fact right now. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks still on track for a higher open this Tuesday. Stocks set to rise after two days of losses, including Friday's big Fed-induced sell-off. Wall Street action could remain choppy as we close out August trading and head toward the traditionally volatile month of September. Lots of upcoming data could affect the direction of the markets as well. New U.S. consumer confidence numbers will be released later today. The big challenge for investors comes on Friday when the U.S. releases the August jobs report. Sam Soval joins us now. He's the chief investment strategist at CFRA Research. Great to have you with us. Good morning, Allison. Good morning. So I am still reeling from that thousand point sell off that happened on Friday. I want to hear what your thoughts are about, uh, you know, about what happened and if, if Jay Powell set the right tone in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Well, I don't think you're alone. I think a lot of people were taken by surprise. Most people thought that uh, Fed Chair Powell really would not say anything substantive at the Jackson Hole meeting because expectations were that there are a lot of data that will come out between now and the uh, September 20th, 21st FOMC meeting. Uh, but he did re, uh, you know, say once again that uh, they want to strangle inflation and are going to uh, take a very firm stance. So the implication, therefore, is that the Fed will uh, raise rates probably by 75 basis points or three quarters of one percent uh, and then add some more as time goes on and not start to lower rates in 2023, as investors thought. Do you think that uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell reignited the bear market? Is uh, the market expected to revisit those June lows? I think that Fed Chair Powell, in a sense, triggered a retest of the June lows. Uh, That happened on June 16th. But history says that we'll probably retest but not set a lower low. Recently, the S&P 500 recovered 50% of the decline that it experienced from January 3rd through June 16th. And whenever we had a 50% or more retracement, we never set a lower low. Of course, not a guarantee, but it is a reassuring statistic. You know, consumers in all walks of life are feeling the effects of high inflation. To them, it's pain. And Jay Powell talked of this pain. But do you think the U.S. economy is really experiencing the pain that he's talking about? Is it when maybe the Fed sees unemployment rise, the job market really taking a hit? Is that the indicator that uh, that Powell wants to see to know that his strategy is taking hold? Well, I think he wants to see the uh, inflation rate come down. Our expectation is by the December reading, we should be close to a 6% year-on-year increase versus the 9% that we saw in June. And then by the end of 2023, uh, our forecast is for 2.5%. So the Fed is really focused on that inflation rate. And unfortunately, you know, in a sense, there could be uh, collateral um, occurrences where, you know, you have higher unemployment, et cetera. 
And that's just part of the uh, the action of raising interest rates in order to dampen inflation. He does not want to repeat the mistakes of the 1970s, where they raised rates only to then loosen them very quickly and really not end up uh, crushing inflation. So hearing how tough he talked at Jackson Hole, do you think at this point a recession in the U.S. is inevitable? I think it's highly likely. Uh, every time since World War II that the year-on-year rise in CPI exceeded 6.5%, and remember, we hit a high watermark of 9.1%, we had a bear market and a recession. The real question, I think, is how shallow will this recession be? And because unemployment is so low currently, uh, and because uh, of the growth that we still see in the economy over the coming quarters, we believe that the recession will be shallow. So with this pedal to the metal approach that the Fed is, is sort of latching onto to get a handle on inflation, I'm curious how concerned you are about you know, the fallout in the economy or the stress in the system that, that will result in this. Well, I think nobody knows for sure uh, how deep it's going to run. And so, yes, you have to be very cautious about it. Uh, but at the same time, you really uh, can't say sell everything and then just wait on the sidelines. Investing is taking advantage of opportunities. And with uh, valuations for stocks being at levels below long-term averages fairly recently, I think investors who do have long-term time horizons need to be nibbling at stocks today. Uh, and they'll be very happy a year from now that they did. So where do you see opportunity in this market then? Well, I think as you had uh, introduced that September is a challenging month. It's uh, along with February, the only two to post an average decline, but it's the only month of all 12 that actually fell more frequently than it rose. So I think we'll see more challenges in September, but I point to another historical tidbit that the October of midterm election years through the October of the year after never fell since World War II, and the average total return was 21%. So I think seasonally, once we get beyond this September and October time period of elevated volatility, investors will end up feeling better a year from now. Two months of buckling, buckling down and uh, buckling it in. Uh, our thanks to Sam Stovall, the chief investment strategist at CFRA Research. Thanks very much. Coming up on First Move, Twitter shares are struggling this morning after Elon Musk says allegations made by Twitter's whistleblower are enough reason to ditch his deal. Details just after the break. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running this Tuesday, a better tone for the market so far, with the U.S. majors on the rise for the first time in three sessions. Tech stocks trying to claw back some of the 5 percent losses suffered since Friday when Fed Chair Jerome Powell issued his hawkish, hawkish message on interest rates. Shares of Twitter are under pressure in early trading as Elon Musk sends a new letter to the social media firm's management. Musk says new whistleblower allegations prove he's justified in trying to back out of his Twitter takeover agreement. Twitter wasting no time in firing back a response. Paula Monica joins us now. Boy, this back and forth is getting really interesting. First, walk us through what this latest reason is that Musk is giving to pull out of this $44 billion deal. 
Yeah, exactly, Allison. Musk obviously has plenty of reasons he wants to back out of the deal, but this new one are based on the allegations from the Twitter whistleblower that were exclusively reported by CNN and The Washington Post that really show allegedly some lax uh, security at uh, cybersecurity at Twitter, which could be, of course, a major problem if you want to spend $44 billion to buy a company that might have some security holes. So Musk is deposing uh, Mudge, uh, Zacco, the uh, you know, former security chief at Twitter. Uh, Zacco is also going to be um, you know, testifying in front of Congress as well. So he's going to be in the news a lot over the next few weeks. Whether or not this effectively scuttles the deal for good still remains to be seen. But Musk doing everything he can to try and back out of the agreed purchase of Twitter for $44 billion. And so what did Twitter say to his latest uh you know, his latest uh, punch. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Twitter clearly wants to have this deal go through. They are trying uh, through, uh, you know, court to see if they can have their, uh, the purchase agreement enforced. And it remains to be seen how a judge will rule in that regard. I think, Allison, though, there are still so many questions. Will Musk agree to pay a higher breakup fee to walk away from this deal? Will he negotiate maybe a lower price to try and buy Twitter since Twitter clearly has been reeling in recent weeks with the stock price now below $40 a share, which you don't need to be a math genius to know that's well below 52.40, the agreed upon takeover price that Musk originally offered. So you know, Musk, in some respects, is holding all the cards, not the least of which being the fact that he is the world's richest person. So uh, I think Twitter is going to try their best to get this deal enforced. But Musk clearly does not want to do this deal, at least not at this price. And with all of these new question marks surrounding Twitter. All right. Our thanks to Paula Monica. Thanks for all that great context. And Twitter isn't Elon's only concern. The billionaire shared his thoughts about the world's population last week, tweeting this, quote, Population collapse due to low birth rate is a much bigger risk to civilization than global warming. So is the global birth rate really that bad? Who else to bring in but Elizabeth Cohen to set us straight? Elizabeth Cohen, is he right or is he wrong? He is wrong, according to the experts that we've talked to, Allison. You know, birth rates are going to go down over the next 80 years or so, but that doesn't mean that there's a population collapse. People are not so worried about this. Now, there are, you know, things will happen. There are economic repercussions, but collapse and worse than global warming, that is really just quite going far, far down a limb. Let's take a look at what the birth rate is going to do. So if you look at births now, what we're seeing is about 134 million babies born worldwide per year. If you project out about 80 years from now, it will go down to 111 million. Now, at least in the U.S., a major reason for that decline is that there are fewer teen pregnancies, and that is a good thing. So again, this is not something to get worried about, according to all the experts that we've spoken to. In fact, one of them said he is better at making cars than about predicting population trends. Allison? And good point. We've got enough to worry about than this. But right, I do want to ask right. you, um, you know, when we look at uh, a birth rate per women, how do countries measure up? 
Yes, it's very interesting to see this. It really has gone down really over the course of like a generation or two. It's such a, a dramatic change. So let's take a look globally at births per women, per woman, I should say. So when you look in the 1950s, it was five per woman. Each woman had on average five babies. When you look at last year, it was 2.3. Again, a big difference in just a pretty short period of time. If you want to look at low birth rate countries, Italy is just 1.2 uh, birth per, births per women. China, the same. Japan, 1.3. Those are three that are particularly low. But again, does this mean the end of civilization as we know it? Is it worse than global warming? Absolutely not. Allison? All right, Elizabeth Cohen. Cohen, thanks for setting him straight. Thanks. Elon Musk, <laughs> thanks. Still to come, Serena Williams delights her fans on a big night at the U.S. Open. More on what could be her last tournament after the break. It was a record-setting opening night at the U.S. Open, fit for the greatest of all time. More than 29,000 fans packed Arthur Ashe Stadium in New York to watch Serena Williams in what could have been her last match. But the 23-time Grand Slam champion did not disappoint, winning her first round match in straight sets. Ahead of the tournament, Williams shared this message with her fans. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I am so overwhelmed and uh, it's just been an incredible, incredible ride. And I'm so happy that you guys are on it with me. And I love you. After 27 years of professional tennis, the 40-year-old champion is looking ahead to new challenges off the court. Joining us now is Patrick Risch. He is a sports business professor at Washington University, St. Louis, and the founder and CEO of the consulting firm Sports Impact. Patrick, thank you for coming in today. Thanks, Allison. Let's begin with Serena's legacy. She's said, she said she never liked the word retirement and kind of thinks of this more as an evolution, doesn't she? Well, she does. And I think, Allison, the thing that we have to remark at is not only the, obviously a true champion of all time, but the legacy that she's made, she's created greater diversity and inclusiveness in the sport itself. We've seen a different socioeconomic of fans than we did 30 years ago, but also some of her peers that are now competing. You see more uh, minorities competing in professional tennis. This is all the impact of Venus and Serena Williams. Yeah, but she's clearly having a hard time with what she calls this evolution. Some may call a retirement. So could this be a retirement much like Tiger Woods, where she competes at, you know, a few events every year? I don't know if you, I'm sure you saw the, the piece she wrote in Vogue. She said, I love to entertain. I'm not sure every player sees it that way, but I love the performance aspect of it, to be able to entertain people week after week. And she's having real misgivings about, you know, evolving or, or retiring. 
Well, one of the things that she can do, obviously, is a double star as well with her sister. You could see potentially opportunities during the year where she could compete with her sister and say doubles events and select events. But uh, I think part of the reason why we're seeing what we're seeing, Allison, is just the physical grind at the age of 40. Uh, let's face it. She's had her share of, of, of adversities physically, which she's overcome. But I think part of what this recent announcement was, was basically saying, look, I'm at a point where I need to kind of dial it back. But maybe we'll see her in some doubles events going forward. She's also said um, she's going to go ahead and turn her focus to her venture, venture capital firm that she began eight years ago called Serena Ventures. What investments do you see her focusing on? Well, certainly being tech forward, uh, you know, a lot of the athletes and certainly Serena is no different wanting to invest in tech forward companies and also those companies that are in, in, focused on empowerment and diversity and, and quality and inclusiveness. You know, it's interesting when you think about when athletes retire, oftentimes if they've been high endorsement earners, they may lose a little bit of the shine, a little bit of the limelight. If they're out of the public's eye, they're not as valuable as an endorser. But in Serena's case, you think about the moment of time that we're in as a country with the, the, the forcefulness of the women's empowerment movement, greater diversity, equality and inclusiveness. I could see companies like the Gatorades, the Gucci's, wanting to continue to affiliate with her. She's a champion, but also any company that champions this message of women's empowerment and diversity and equality. So again, for her and her uh, investments, I think sports tech and tech in general is going to be one area that we'll see her focus in. What do you think makes Serena Williams a good marketing celebrity? I mean, you know, where does she rank with that consumer appeal? What makes her so relatable? Well, I think the relatability comes back to, again, I mean, you, you've got someone that's a champion. First and foremost, uh, 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 corporate America wants someone that's a winner. You also, again, in this day and age, with the emphasis that there's been on women's empowerment and diversity and equality, obviously she represents that. She personifies that from her upbringing. What a wonderful story, right? Coming from from where she did to where she is now. It's it's just a, a inspiring story. And so for these reasons, the champion inspiration, personification of all of these characteristics and attributes that brands want to be affiliated with. I think this is what makes her such an attractive product endorser, not just now, but for years to come. Yeah. And we will have to see where she winds up um, after her tennis days are somewhat over, but it will be interesting to see how she branches out with Serena Ventures. Patrick Risch, thanks so much uh, for your perspective. Patrick Risch, sports business professor at Washington University, St. Louis, and founder of Sports Impacts. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Allison. Coming up after the break, floating homes of the future being built right now. These space age pods come with all the luxuries for modern living, except of course, a driveway. And now the ultimate home, if you'd like to be alone. Take a look at these luxury living pods, which float on steel tubes three meters above the surface of the water. They cost between $295,000 and $1.5 million a piece. And they're currently under construction in the Linton Bay Marina on the north coast of Panama. The company behind it called Ocean Builders. The company hopes to distribute them internationally once it's confident the technology can be supported elsewhere. You get 73 square meters of living space in one of these things. You get panoramic windows, and they come loaded with technology. The company says if you run out of milk, 
pay. Then drones will deliver small items. And as for taking out the garbage, well, larger autonomous vehicles, they'll do that job. The company has also devised a model for use on land. Grant Ramont is the CEO of Ocean Builders, and I am so excited to talk with you about these super cool sci-fi looking pods. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Allison. Great to be here. So let's talk about what the options are for those who want to buy one of these things. There's one built uh, for aquatic living, one for land, and a third for what you call a more environmentally friendly option. Um, Is there a certain person who can actually handle this kind of living? Talk us through who the right person is to buy one of these and to live in, in, in one of these. Uh, You know, I was originally living in a floating home about three and a half years ago uh, in Toronto. It looked like a normal house, but it was on a floating concrete barge. And everyone that came to visit just fell in love with the lifestyle. And um, I I found that people that would never think about living on the water just fell in love with it. And I didn't even know it existed until I stayed there uh, as a one-night Airbnb, and then I extended for a week, and then a month, and then the summer, and then I didn't leave for many years. So now I've come here to Panama to build what I believe is the the world's most technologically advanced floating home, uh, and maybe most advanced uh, home on land as well. Um, So is it easy for... Oh, go ahead, finish your thought. So I think the market for this is uh, pretty much anyone that I can get on to a C-Pod for just a few minutes because the the views are stunning and uh, I think people will fall in love with the lifestyle. So I want to go through some of the specs with you a little bit more. What is um, the aquatic one attached to? How far into the ocean is it sitting and can you install these anywhere in the world? Um, so the pod itself, we call it C-Pod, the, the floating version in the water. It looks kind of, it's kind of an optical illusion. It looks like the, the post, the steel tube post goes straight into the seafloor um, because the whole house is, is floating so high up above the ground or above the water. It doesn't look like it could just be floating, but it actually is floating. Uh, it can be in a minimum five meters of water and a maximum of about 200 meters. What if there is a big storm that's coming or it's just a big wave? I mean... Is it being held steady that much that it could sustain that sort of force? Uh, We're engineered for waves of up to five meters. And if we wanted to engineer for larger waves, we could. Uh, We're going to start a a testing project next year uh, in Florida where we are going to try to engineer them for hurricane conditions. And if we can crack that nut, then I think this will be really popular in Florida about 40% of our global demand and increase is actually coming from Florida. So I think there's a huge market for these there. But right now we started in Panama because we're outside of the hurricane zone here. So it just makes things really easy. What about electricity and also security? Pirates, I mean, you know, it's going to take a long time. If you're having an issue in your pod, it's going to take a long Mm -hmm. time, I would think, for security to get to where you are to help you. Uh, well, we are starting at a place that's really close to the marina, so we have all the infrastructure here that we need. We have, um, clo- we're close to convenience stores and um, security as well, um, but this is a pretty secure area. 
Um, but we all, we can also have aerial drone delivery or aerial drones that come out and do surveillance and just make sure everything's safe. We also have something we've we built called Boat AI, and it's a camera that is placed at different points around the bottom of the pod, and we can see for several miles in every direction. And we have uh, it connected to an AI algorithm that can detect if there's unfriendly or unknown boats heading directly your way, so you can have lots of notice if there's any issues. Okay, so full disclosure, I need to take Dramamine when I go on a, uh, a boat. How do you not get seasick on one of these? Right, right. Um, well, the challenge with most boats is that the floating part of, like that you're actually in is floating in the wave line. And so our homes, <clears throat> if you notice, they're floating several meters above the waves. And then the flotation, which is under the water, is under the wave line. So we're actually skipping that whole wave section, which is where that movement comes from. Um, and there's uh, only a 1.6 di meter diameter pole that's connected, uh, connecting the two. So the waves are really interacting with a very small um, piece of material versus an entire boat. So instead of a boat moving around in the waves, we're floating above the waves. And very quickly, I'm curious how many of these futuristic pods you need to sell to turn a profit. Um, well, we're going to need to do some refactoring for our manufacturing to get the costs down, because right now we've been building um, our prototypes, which have been an incredible amount of work. That's been a huge project. Um, we've had about 80 people working for the last, or up to 80 people working for the last five years to build this technology. and. This is an incredibly complex thing. It's never nothing like it's been ever ever been done before. There's uh, marine engineering. There's um, software, hardware, and uh, material science. And there's so many things that need to come together to make this happen. That uh, it's been a huge project. So we need to um, get our manufacturing up. But based, we just did our launch a week ago today, and uh, our online launch, and it was the response has mm -hmm. been phenomenal. So I well, think. We're already seeing the numbers we need to get into mass production. We just need to build the, the structures to get there. Well, they look super cool. And um, I wish you much luck. Grant Ramond, CEO of Ocean Builders, thanks so much for, for your time today. Okay. Thank you, Allison. One last look at the markets. U.S. stocks a little changed in recent trading. Stocks trying to bounce back after two days of selling. But investors still concerned about the pace of central bank rate hikes and what upcoming data will tell us about the health of the U.S. economy. Energy stocks pulling back sharply, too, amid weakness in the global price of oil today. And today marks the return of the famous pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks. But like most things, the fall favorite is not immune to inflation. It'll cost you about 4% more than last year to have one of these, with a grande going for nearly $6.00. In some U.S. locations, Starbucks has amassed a loyal fan base for this specific drink for almost 20 years. That's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.